Welcome to this episode of Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider. I'm your moderator today, John Reitman, and our guest is Bob Zoller of Monterey Peninsula Country Club in Pebble Beach, California. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Happy to talk with you. So give our listeners a little bit of a background. I know you've been there for a long time, 40 plus years. Exactly how long have you been at Monterey Peninsula? Yeah, I'm working on my uh, my 43rd year right now. I started in uh, June of 1976. And you come from sort of a legacy in the business. Tell us how you got started. I believe your father was in the business before you. Yeah, my dad was a superintendent, and um, we actually grew up on the on the golf course at Eugene Country Club in Eugene, Oregon. And back then was when they had you know so many courses had a house for the superintendent, so they could be there on site, and so. We lived in a little house on the back of the driving range. That's the the first house I remember. So, it was um, it was a kind of a way of life for all of us. And you know that was before there were all the labor laws and things. So, gosh, we probably I think I was able to start caddying when I was eight. And uh, he he put me on the greens crew, and I started mowing tees when I was probably eleven. So, um, got we we were able to get an early start that way. And you are a University of Oregon graduate. Is that correct? Correct, yes. So what was your degree there? That's When you have Oregon and Oregon State, that's sort of the non-traditional way to get into business is through Eugene as opposed to Corvallis. Yeah, so it had to do – so I, I played a lot of um, junior golf and school golf growing up, and and um, it was a function of I, I thought I could play the game still, and so I, I had a chance to go to the U of O, and I actually had a, a chance to play golf at Oregon State as well, but – Oregon in those days had a, a a pretty good golf team and and thought I would give that a go, um, but I still I majored in uh, life sciences, so it actually was still a pretty good um, a pretty good fit, you know, lots of chemistry and biology and those sorts of things. How did you get your start at MPCC? Well, um, so our dad um, took a took the job. So interesting story. But one of the guys on the U of O golf team, um, a fellow named Jeff Gilbert, his dad was actually the Green Committee chairman at Monterey Peninsula Country Club. And so my dad did just a wonderful job with with Eugene Country Club. And and the the fellow's dad was a um, was a retired uh, Air Force colonel. And so he would he had the time to be able to come up and watch his son play golf a lot. And so at that time, which I believe was 1974, um, he had been around Eugene Country Club enough. Um, MPCC was looking for a superintendent, and um, basically they uh, they hired my dad away uh, from there, and he came to MPCC. And um, my brothers and I, we were kind of dyed in the wool Oregonians, and we didn't follow. So um, we, we stayed in Oregon, and we were all still in college, so we stayed there and just figured we would, would make a go of it there. And then when I was um, a senior and uh, getting ready to graduate that spring, uh, uh, my dad had phoned and said, you want to come down and work for me? He said he had a big crew, and, and not many of them knew much about golf, and um, he could use some help. So I kind of thought, well, I'll do it for a summer or for a short time and then head back to Oregon. And so I, I basically uh, came for a summer job and stayed for a while. How does somebody last that long in one position nowadays? Well, you know what? It's just, I, I think it was happenstance as, as much as anything. You know, if you're a golf fan and you love golf and you love what we do here, I mean, obviously the Monterey Peninsula is a, is a really terrific place to do this work. You know, the, 
the the climate's mild. Um, you know, I've seen, gosh, what have I seen? I've seen six or seven U.S. Opens, you know, between here and Olympic Club and a Walker Cup and a PGA and, you know, just lots of cool golf stuff. And, and I'm a golf fan just as much as anything. Um, obviously, you know, and kind of that kind of deal, how it shakes out. I mean, you know, uh, there were times at, at different times uh, over that period of, of 43 years where, I had a chance to go elsewhere and had talked with other people about other different jobs, and and I was either um, too smart or too stupid to go anywhere else. And and so you know, and then you, you kind of reach a point. Then eventually, I think where you know people kind of realize you're not going to leave. And so you know, it's been a long time now. I think when you get you know your mid fifties or whatever, people are kind of figuring then that you're going to stay there. And 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 they've been very very good to me here. And it's just I think it's just been a good fit more than anything. Uh, MPCC has been on the uh, AT&T Pro-Am circuit now for what, probably about seven or eight years. Yeah, I think we'll be doing our 10th uh, this coming year. 10th, I think okay. we started in, in 10. How has that, being part of that rotation, changed the way things are done there now? You know, it's a um, it's fun. You know, I mean, as a golf fan, it's fun to have those guys here. Um, my first, my very first year, 1977, um, of course the, the MPCC had been out of the rotation for a while at that point, but Spyglass had had some difficulty with some greens, um, in the winter of kind of the late, uh, year of 76. And so on about 30 days notice, the tour had contacted MPCC and, and brought the tour over, um, to play the shore, uh, that year. And so my first year, um, I, I actually was had had the opportunity to be involved in that. It was a lot of fun. And then when we were getting back involved again, you know, same thing. Look forward to it a lot. And um, and you know, it's a you know, it's a, it's a roadshow, right? I mean, they come in, they 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 get in, they get out, and they're on their way. You know, obviously for us, there there's a couple months worth of you know gearing up for it. I think the biggest business from an op, uh, biggest difference from an operational standpoint is that you know once we passed Thanksgiving here um, for all those years prior to that you know there was a real nice quiet time from about you know mid to late November through about March one March fifteenth you know when people kind of started to play more golf again and um, and I think what it's done really is it's kind of kept us going just year round you know we. We start doing some little things to get ready for that. It's always the first week in February, and we'll start prepping for that in in some uh, way, shape, or form. You know, by the first or second week in December. So uh, it's you know it's uh, and of course at that time of year it depends a lot on what the winter's like. You know, we've had a couple of really nice winters where you know uh, getting ready for it was was a snap, and we've had other winters too where we had a lot of rain and and there was a lot of work to do as we headed into the tournament. If you look back over 43 years, how has the task of turf management changed? Yeah, you know, I think probably um, the biggest, one of the biggest things I think would be, you know, the expectations of people. You know, even when I when I first started, you know, it was still a bit of a seasonal game. You know, people, it got real wet here in the winter, and, and it, it seems like, you know, when you look at uh, – a history of the rainfall, you know, it certainly did rain more um, or, or rainier cycles years ago. And so, you know, it was kind of a, you know, the winter was pretty quiet and pretty slow and, and there wasn't that expectation. But, you know, nowadays there's really an expectation, you know, 365 days a year that, you know, you're going to have the golf course and 
pretty playable condition. You know, obviously you got airifications and, and some project work that might, you know, that slows that down a little bit. But I think people just expect a lot more, you know. When uh, in my early times here, we, we ran this place with uh, 18 people. And um, and that didn't seem unusual, you know. It just uh, it, it just seemed normal. And then um, you know now we have uh, we have 46 guys, and and uh, there's just such a greater expectation that you know you you really need to um, you know you really need to to be be on it and with it and have that sense of urgency that I think people expect to uh, to see at a place like this. You were an accomplished golfer as a as a young man. Do you play much now? You know, I still play some, not, not near as much as I used to. Um, I really enjoyed through my 20s and 30s playing in, you know, regional um, amateur tournaments and things. And, you know, when you have kids and you get a little older and things, you know, you, I, I don't play as much. I probably play uh, at least once a week, um, you know, and, and maybe in times of bad weather, not quite so much. But, uh, yeah, I still get out there, you know, uh, you know reasonably frequently. Do you play your own place, or do you like to play somewhere else? You you probably are able to get on any course in the Pebble Beach area with nothing more than a phone call. So, yeah, you know, I still I enjoy playing here. One of the really nice things about this place is that it's pretty quiet in the afternoon. So, you know, you can come out in the afternoon and, and play in two and a half hours if you like. You know, the the biggest issue with playing other places around here, of course, is you know. Uh, a, Certainly, like Pebble Beach is so busy with tourists that, you know, you're looking at a, a longer time to play golf, and and um, and you know, there's there's some of that sort of resort thing where really it takes a lot of time, and if nothing, if there's nothing else, uh, whether I hit them good or hit them bad, um, I, I enjoy and and think people should play golf a little faster than they do, and so for me, uh, just being out there and and having fun is what it's all about, and if I can do that in two and a half hours versus five, um, I'm, I'm all over the two and a half hours. We'll be right back after this brief message from our sponsor. Pinpoint Fungicide from New Farm Americas contains a new active ingredient to deliver outstanding early and late season control of dollar spot. Pinpoint provides superintendents and turf management professionals with an excellent fungicide rotation partner to optimize disease management stewardship. Pinpoint's unique and targeted active ingredient has been proven in university performance trials and delivers outstanding control of dollar spot, take all patch, fairy ring, and brown patch to ensure a clean field of play. For more information, visit newfarm.com. We're back on Living Legends, brought to you by the New Farm Insider, with our guest Bob Zoller of Monterey Peninsula Country Club. Your brother is also in the business, and I believe now is has risen to the level of general manager over at Tehama. Uh-huh. And working for Clint Eastwood. Do you two ever brag about who you think has the better job? <laughs> No, not really. I, I think we're both really fortunate. We we both have had, you know, some really good opportunities. And um, no, not at all. I, I think it would be more that we're really, uh, really thrilled and thankful that we, we've had the opportunities we've had and, and kind of landed in, in such terrific spots. Talk to us a little bit about 
some of the people who have come through MPCC while you've been the superintendent there, how many have gone on and become head superintendents elsewhere? You know, I used to keep count, um, and and I think it's somewhere in the, the mid-20s now. And um, it, it seems unfair because several of them have already retired and um, and are enjoying life. And, and uh, a, a lot of really good guys who are out there at a number of places, some of them uh, very long-term. Dennis, Dennis Kerr um, uh, worked here with me for, gosh, for a few years. I think it was probably the early 80s. And, and he's now been at, at Quail for, gosh, I think he's over 30 years now. So... You know, it's kind of fun to see um, people who have, have gone and done really good jobs and retired or, or had some longevity at the places they are. And and I've always thought that that was one of the really, um, really great things, you know, to kind of be able to keep uh, keep paying back a little bit. For those who aren't familiar with the setup out there, can you talk to us a little bit about the formation of that reservoir out there, who's on it, and how the draw from that works for everybody? Yeah, so, um, you know, there was, if, if, if anybody, maybe not uh, everyone's going to be old enough to remember this, but the mid to late 70s in California, um, there was significant drought uh, winters. And so when I first arrived, um, you know, we were still on potable water. Um, all, actually, all the golf courses around. And and um, there were some contentious times when we had to go to the local water meetings and and try and stand up for golf and the importance of, of golf courses to the local economy and and tourism and all of that. And, you know, the, the general perception from the public was, you know, it's a waste of water to keep those golf courses going. And, and we literally had to go and, and beg for water. And uh, there were a couple years when we simply had enough for tees and greens, and that was it. So after going that through that for a number of years, we had been, we had been working for a while on trying to get a, a – a, reclaimed water system in place for at least for the golf courses in Pebble Beach and as you know there are seven of us in here and um, so in 1992 after gosh probably more than 10 years of planning um, we finally got a pipeline put in from the from the Carmel area wastewater district which is seven miles away and so um, water is treated and gathered and treated here in Pebble Beach it's sent over to Carmel to the treatment plant and then it's sent back to the golf courses uh, for use. And um, and so in the early days, we were able to um, service the golf courses just from the, the daily production. There was no storage at all, and which which actually worked fine. The the guys in the um, in the in the Del Monte Forest here have a great rapport and and a terrific group of superintendents and. If we had some warm stretches, we always figured out how to work through it, or we'd give ourselves a kind of self-imposed uh, rationing max on certain nights just to get through. But eventually, as California went further and further into the uh, water um, savings issues, as far as, you know, um, everybody has to install low-flush toilets and low-flow showerheads and things. So a plant that was initially uh, built to service or to, to provide um, 2 million gallons a day um, got to a point where they only receive in a max of about 1.2 million gallons a day. So basically 40% of the water went away. And so in um, in 05, um, we actually added a couple of components. There was an old reservoir that holds 115 million gallons uh, at the top of Pebble Beach that had been abandoned um, a number of years earlier. 
and also we had found that we did have an, a bit of an issue with uh, sodium being a little too high for POA annua in the uh, in the treated water. So in 05, we added uh, the reservoir to the system and also um, an RO uh, component to the system. So now the, the sodium's nicely in line, and, and we certainly have uh, the reservoir helps us. We still enter every year with a with a self-imposed uh, daily max that we that we the soups have all agreed on together and stick to. And so it, it's not we're certainly not out of the woods. We we still let our driving ranges our driving range fairways uh, dry up in the summer and that sort of thing. But um, luckily, we, we can get through with it and manage it reasonably well. One of the challenges, I think, with reclaimed water is that your supply is affected by how much potable water is used. And there's such a drive to conserve water. How does the conservation of fresh water affect the amount of water that all of you have at your disposal. Yeah, well, it's a, there is a direct relationship, and that the point I was making before addresses exactly that. Is that so? In days when people did not worry about that at all, basically they got two million gallons per day into that uh, wastewater system. And since you know, since all of the measures regarding the the low flow and the low flush and all that, it it, it will get one point two in per day at a max. So and it, and it continues to dwindle each year. So you know the the rationing measures that peop, that homeowners go through. I don't think they'll ever turn the other way again. Even if uh, even if ample water was available, simply because it's so expensive. You know I think uh, the the water at least uh, at least what I'm told by uh, by the people who monitor such things. You know basically we pay we have the most expensive irrigation water in the country, and it's it's reclaimed. You know, so, I mean, a lot of places, you know, they're trying to get rid of reclaimed water, but we pay a premium price for it. And so uh, it's the same, though, for homeowners. The potable water is so expensive that so homeowners have shut down whatever they can. You know, they they welcome having the low-flow toilets and shower heads, and they don't use as much water. They might not run the washing machine as much as they used to. So that's never going to go away, in my mind. And so... um, it's difficult. Yeah, the, the public will continue to conserve. You know, the Monterey Peninsula is, is basically built out. There won't be more homes or more housing developments or whatever. So, yeah, it's it's a real concern. And, and we continuously, we have a water group in place that that looks for, you know, out-of-the-box um, out solutions to how we might be able to get that inflow up back into that sewer plant. It was well chronicled a few years ago, the the drought in California and the mandated water use restrictions that were handed down from Sacramento. And that was a very complex formula. There was no cookie cutter solution for that from place to place to place, depending on what water district you were in, dictated how much, if anything, users had to cut back. The water situation out there has changed golf in California pretty much forever. As you project out five, ten, and maybe beyond that years, how do you see the golf industry in California changing because of water issues? Well, I think we've already seen a fair amount of it. You know, in in Southern California, I would I'm just going to kind of guess here, but in the last four or five years, I think I know of um, 
gosh, probably five courses that have closed down, and, and the main reason they've closed is because they simply can't afford their water bill. And so we, we have not had any courses um, on the Monterey Peninsula that have closed down uh, for that reason. But I kind of foresee that that's going to be the issue as time goes forward. You know, it's there's two things. There's the availability, but there's also the, the cost. And, and in so many cases, the water's so expensive. And obviously, you know, when you don't get – there's no chance of rain for six or seven or eight months a year. I mean, you know, every golf course, whether it's a daily fee or a small little muni or whatever – you know, if they can't afford to pay the water bill, you know, I don't know that they're left with many options but to just close up shop. And I, I'm afraid we'll see that more. I, I just, in California, don't see how either availability or price is going to be in golf courses' favor over the next 5, 10, 15 years. You know, I think uh, places are going to be really fortunate, like like uh, the, the Pell Beach area where, you know, we've found a, at least a reasonable solution you know, maybe it doesn't have quite the volume of water that we would want, but at least it's going to be a, a secure source that we'll be able to rely on that's not going to take away from, you know, from the public's potable water. So from the water standpoint, I, I just, I believe it's going to be really tough, and I think it's going to be, behoove every golf course to to try and think out of the box and, and figure out where they're going to, you know, possibly um, get supplemental, um, you know, amounts of water to help them. You know, I, I'm sure you, you're well aware of this, but, you know, turf reduction has been a huge thing, uh, you know, for, gosh, I, I think it dried up pretty fast, but three or four years ago, you know, they were some water districts in Southern California were paying um, for square footage of turf reduction, and a lot of golf courses got a huge check written back, and, and, and we didn't have that program in our area, but just, you know, out of self-defense. I mean, we've cut back on, on irrigated acreage and uh, when we renovated uh, both of the golf courses, you know, we we uh, showed a great reduction in irrigated turf, and and I think that's what it's going to be all about for for everyone is number one trying to figure out how to get get more water and also how to use less water. When you throw in the labor component, and it's it's a struggle for everybody now. That's probably the the single biggest challenge I hear about. Everybody is struggling to get enough help and and retain that some states are in a unique situation where not only is there a shortage of labor but there are efforts afoot to bring the minimum wage standard up which then obviously is going to increase the cost of labor exponentially when you throw in something like that how, how much of a challenge then does labor become not only just to find it but yeah, I think um, I think we'll all find that that, that labor aspect will, will become. I'm going to say the the biggest challenge. I mean, my my time my run's about done. But you know, as this continues to go further, that's going to be huge. I mean, there was for so many years we would have you know zero turnover, you know, just none at all. I mean, guys would stay and stay and stay. But I'm going to say for the last five to seven years now, you know, especially when you get a guy that's got a young family. I mean, we've had a lot of guys um, that'll finally decide to move out of state, you know, because housing's housing's less and they can afford to buy a house, whereas, you know, they just can't on the Monterey Peninsula. Um, you know, there's a, there's a couple guys I know in, San o- in the San Jose area and, you know, with the, uh, with the Silicon Valley aspect of how homes have skyrocketed there, I know one fellow who was budgeted to have a crew of, uh, I think, 19 at an 18-hole golf course, and, and the most he ever could find to have on at one time last year was 14. 
and that was because he simply could not find anybody who lived close enough that, that would take that work for that pay. And so I think particularly in the areas of, of California where housing is expensive and, and um, you know, it's just so difficult for people to, to uh, make it, especially for families to make it, that you're going to see, you know, people leave the state or, or people just not be able to geographically live close enough to a golf course to work there. So it, it just it seems like it's changed quite a bit already, and, and I'm expecting that it'll change even more. Yeah, there's, you know, it's probably not something you're facing, but when, when you do have a, a, a continued shortage of help, at some point it's going to affect what you're able to do on the golf course, or it's going to impact uh, maybe not what you do, but how you do it is, a, you know, are you able to walk mow greens anymore? Do you have to switch to mowing uh, triplex mowing or, or what have you? But um, it, it's going. There are going to be some tough decisions to be made as far as conditioning at some point for a lot of places. No, oh, I think so. I, I think definitely so. I mean, we're you know the places, the uh, uh, private clubs that you know, uh, MPCC has been a, a pretty secure place for a long time, and and we're just very fortunate. I mean, we can still walk mow greens. You know, we can still you know, at least do the basics, you know, do we always get to do all the extra things that are on my list? You know, not, not always, as you would hope, um, you know, the golf course things, obviously uh, those come first and we've got a, a, a large tournament schedule, but you know, the, the, the things that the people are going to go through trying to get that done, you know, at a place where they're fighting for daily fee rounds or whatever. Yeah. There's, there's definitely going to be some, uh, you know, some uh, balances that have to go in just to make things work. You mentioned how your run there is just about done. How much longer do you think you're going to hang around? You know, I think uh, probably by the end of um, of, ni- of 19, you know, I've probably got a, a little bit over a year left. And I'm starting to, um, to kind of figure that out now. But, uh, yeah, it's it's coming up here pretty quickly. What are the things you like to do when you're not at work and that you're looking forward to be, maybe doing a little bit more? You know, um, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to get out of the Monterey Peninsula because it's, uh, for, for those who might not know and are listening to this, it's freezing here. It's like, being a, it's like being a superintendent in Alaska, especially in July and August. And uh, so I'm going to go a little bit south uh, where I can get some warm weather and never be cold again. And uh, my wife and I like to travel, so we'll do a fair amount of that and Got a couple of um, old cars that I enjoy um, driving and fiddling around with. So I think I'll have plenty to do. I'm not worried about that at all. The only thing I might not do is I might not spend a lot of time at golf courses anymore. What kind of cars do you have? You know, I've got a, uh, gosh, I love cars from the 60s, and I've got a 67 Camaro and just got a a 64 Corvette. My wife's got a little old uh, 64 Corvair. Um, so we're, you know, we, we just enjoy those, uh, we enjoy the, the kind of the retro, uh, cars from the sixties for sure. So the Corvette, is that a 350, uh, 327? Uh, 327. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the Camaro? This Camaro is a 350 and, and it, it goes pretty good. Yeah. They actually, they both do, but, but listen, there's a, there's a, a real problem with an old man in a cool, fast car. So I, I drive him a little more like an old man than a uh, than a young guy would. Well, Bob, thanks a lot for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We certainly appreciate your time. 
You're very welcome.